Hello, I'm Greg. Let's have an inappropriate conversation about Revelation Weekend. It's far better to say something that should not be said than not to say something that should be said. A few months ago, I had a conversation with a couple of friends, online friends, and uh, we were speaking about issues related to religion. And one of the topics that came up, particularly dealing with a spectrum of people in the realm of belief, uh, somebody who does not have a faith in God, someone who has had a faith in God but has had serious doubts, and, and then me, right? So a pretty broad spectrum. And the question was, you know, why as a Christian do I trust that the things that were recorded in the Bible were actually spoken? And it wasn't just the question of, do I have confidence in transcriptions and translations? Because there's a variety of, of thought I have there. Some translations I don't have a lot of confidence in, but I have a much higher and perhaps higher than your average person trust in the transcription process. But the real question was, how can you be certain that when Paul wrote letters about his experience that he was actually recording them accurately? How can you be sure that when that Jesus told Peter something, that Mark wrote that down accurately, or that Luke wrote that down accurately? And the thing that I told them was that if you actually feel that you've been on the receiving end of answered prayer, if you feel as if the Holy Spirit has seized upon you and through the Lord himself spoken some word of truth to you, you don't forget it. Now, whether you remember it or forget it is one question. I feel pretty comfortable saying that if you have one of those moments in your life, you're not going to forget it. You're going to remember what happened. You're going to remember the words accurately. And I'm going to back that up with my own personal experience here in just a moment. Whether you understand it, that's a completely different question. And along those lines, I want to start today with a quick quotation from Scripture, Paul's first letter to Corinthians, chapter 2, starting with verse 12. Now we have received, not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them, because they are spiritually appraised. So I'm going to share some personal things in this episode, and I assure you more personal than I ever have before. I don't think I have any reason to expect that I will be believed, but that's because of this difference between human understanding and spiritual understanding. I'm telling you the truth, but just because I say something I know to be true doesn't mean I have an expectation that it is going to be believed. That's a different matter altogether. So when you put some of the, what might be called supernatural qualities of last week's inappropriate conversation together with this one, to me, I think it paints a pretty good picture of what I was dealing with over a five or six year span of time. And Believe me, both from the previous accounting and from this one, I haven't forgotten. I've only shared this maybe once or twice before in my entire life, and I usually uh, try to do it one of two ways. Now, a year ago, around this same time, I spoke about some of the same events, so this story is going to have a familiar backdrop to anyone who's listened to all of the inappropriate conversations. So there's that way of telling it. Um, here's some things that happened. Here's a friend of mine. Here's how we met. But there's another way of telling it, which I've shared in a uh, church sort of setting. A few years ago, I went on a uh, spiritual retreat, a men's retreat, where I was not just a participant. I was also one of the speakers. And my job was to share a little bit about my personal relationship with Jesus Christ, to speak in terms of what the word piety means. It was truly one of those mountaintop experiences where you're getting ready to give this talk. It's a good 25, 30 minutes long. And of course, in my hand, sometimes 30 turns into 35, right? And I had uh, prepared written words, but I hadn't memorized them. So I'd provided myself a little bit of an out, a little bit of freedom that if I felt that I needed to veer in another direction, I, I could do it. 
And to be honest with you, the whole speech was that way. I pretty much stuck to what I had written and prepared. But it didn't necessarily feel like I was in control of that moment. And when I got back from that, I told you know some friends that um, I had actually had one of those one of those mountaintop experiences. Not for the first time. In fact, what I'm going to talk about the rest of the show is another one too. And it wasn't the first time either. And he asked me, hey, you know, if you feel like you're ready, would you mind sharing some of that? To my shame, I was never ready. I was never ready because it required meeting him face to face first. It required some better personal connection. And as, as I start talking about it, I think I'll get to why. But there's something just a touch too intimate about this. And I have always lived my life in a way that I tend to get just a little bit wary. I'm not going to say suspicious, but wary when people are so quick to describe every intimate moment in their prayer life or in their relationship with God, because certainly some of it ought to be just between you and God, right? So I'm about to violate that right here. And I do so, um, I do so with a lot of knowledge, a lot of awareness, and a lot of uncertainty. In John chapter 15, uh, Jesus, in the midst of making an analogy about the vine and the fruit, Um, He says these words, abide in me as I abide in you. Verse four, I like John Phillips description of the word abide in this passage as meaning make yourself at home. Jesus is saying, let's hang you and me. Let's hang out at your place. Well, a church friend asked me to describe this relationship of mine in some ways to prepare me for giving a talk about what piety means. I asked him to consider his relationship with his wife, particularly the part of that relationship that only belonged to them, not necessarily the physical part of it, but more the emotional part, or perhaps even a spiritual connection of sorts. Things like knowing what your wife wants before she even has a chance to call you and tell you what she wants, finishing each other's sentences, some of that sort of stuff, which for me and my wife goes way back to before we were familiar enough with each other to even explain all that. The connection was was there, not just emotionally, but also spiritually. So I asked him, what did he share with his wife that didn't belong to anyone else? He didn't share that same thing, that same idea, those same concerns or those same hopes and dreams, even with their children or their relatives. It was just theirs. Now, when you turn that same focus upward, you can ask the question, what do you share with the Lord? What do you ask of him that you wouldn't dare ask another person? How does he share with you when you settle in and listen, truly listen, when you abide in him? As I was considering how to share this, today. I remembered some things about dating my wife. On our first date, which is the last real first date I've had for 31 years, as a matter of fact, (laughs) what do I share with God when I don't have anything else specifically on my heart? Well, one thing is thanking him for every one of those years. Well, several times my wife and I would go on dates that weren't very clearly defined. I mean, often enough, we had a particular movie or a party or restaurant in mind. But other times, I just end up telling my parents or my roommates that I was just going to her place. You're just going over there, they'd ask. You don't have anything planned? Especially the parents would ask that. There's a truth in this answer that goes way beyond boy meets girl. The answer, it doesn't matter what we end up doing. I just want to be with her. Jesus uses a slightly different word. Abide. True piety establishes a relationship, a two-way street. It's mine and the Lord's. And that fact has always made me very careful about what I share. See, piety, not pietism, and not false piety, which is really all about self. Piety is the deepest and most intimate part of my relationship with the Lord. It's not just about me, though. There are other people that Jesus loves, And through that love, he wants me to know them. Some already know him. Many don't. And some won't. And that doesn't matter. So to me, the question is raised, what does it mean to know something? Mean to truly know it? Well, it's not just I saw it. 
A reporter may hear you speak and not really know anything about you or the rest of your story except the words that you spoke on that one occasion and answering maybe that one question. Reason is not sufficient. We use reason to calculate the things that are beyond our embrace, beyond our knowledge. You see, when you tell a brand new friend, I want to get to know you better. Well, there's a lot more going on there. That's all I'm saying, at least for me. It's not enough to describe it in words like I saw it or I figured it or I just sensed it. No, it means to truly know it, you know, and for me, that knowledge is not a matter of observation or reason or intuition. I look at it like I look back at some of those experiences in high school when I knew things that I couldn't possibly know. I knew things I wasn't told. I knew things I hadn't read. And I knew them with a conviction that can only be described with the word knowledge. Where am I heading with this? When Jesus shares with you a little bit about his love for someone else, someone you have met or will meet, he may be asking you to step out in faith. His love provides that crucial first impression and paves the way. Because you love him, if you do, you know enough to share his love with others. That's agape. His love, God's love. To be honest, I'm not sure how we would ever really know anyone else without love. It takes faith or a certain kamikaze spirit to engage in sincere and open sharing with others. When we rely on faith, we go in with a certain knowledge, an assurance, if you will, that God loves me and I can trust him when I'm smart enough to listen for his will. Therefore, if the Lord wants me to get to know this other person, even if I've never spoken to him or her before and feel awkward and intimidated, I can take that step in his love. So there is a story from my past that I usually don't share. I told part of it here, though, a year ago, probably a year ago today. So now, once more with feeling, I guess, if I'm really going to talk about Revelation Weekend. I think I've always kept part of this story to myself because of piety. It's a part of that intimate relationship, belonging not just to me, but also to Jesus. However, a year or so ago, I guess, uh, I just felt as if I had permission, God's permission, you might say, to share. That's a big deal. It's really one of those rare occasions where it felt like God had grabbed me and directly commanded my attention. It's the kind of thing that would never happen at the expense of the relationship, but it's a little bit like getting a direct call. The Holy Spirit saying, listen to me. You need to listen to me now. So the previous time in Inappropriate Conversations 44, I talked about it personally. This time, I'm going to talk about it spiritually. Our friend Casey, that we mentioned earlier, has never seen Empire or Jedi. What? No. I know. I nearly banished her. I'm Jen. And I'm Angela. And we're the socially functional co-hosts of Anomaly, the podcast with a unique perspective, a female perspective on all things geek. Star Trek, Star Wars, Lord of the Rings, Buffy, Firefly, gaming, books, costuming, and general geek topics. The sometimes monthly, but always entertaining Anomaly Podcast. Anomalypodcast.com. My last year in college, I had a powerful feeling that something important was going to happen in my presence. Even from the very first day, just moving in, but I didn't know what it was. All the way through the first semester, I continued to have that feeling, but nothing happened. By the time the second semester started, I had let it go. I was busy. Managing editor of the student newspaper kept me occupied, and there were wedding plans that spring. I even had a couple of classes to attend. So it was at the newspaper office, really, that I first noticed that something was wrong with Spider. I'm going to go with nicknames here for the individual that I'm going to spend most of this time talking about. 
nicknames and acronyms for folks just to to depersonalize it just a little bit. But there's something actually very personal about the nickname Spider. It came from what I would describe as a shared dream. And if I feel led during the course of this conversation, I'll, I'll talk a little bit about why later. She was a full-time reporter, and that's how I knew her. Student government and Board of Regents were important parts of her beat. I don't think I can explain how I knew something was wrong. Other writers who knew her better didn't notice. It's not like I had known her long enough to claim that I was detecting a change in her behavior either. This was a new arrangement in terms of my role in the newspaper office and her assignment to working uh, for me as a reporter. In retrospect, I suppose you could describe the situation this way, but I say this only in retrospect. It was as if Jesus was saying to me, I love you and I love her. I want you to get to know her. You see, Spider is not listening to me right now, and I know she needs to hear my words. I know that she will listen to you. So, Greg, will you listen to me? Will you share with her? But again, that perspective, hindsight, 100% of the way. That's not how I approach things. I approach Spider as a boss, her supervisor. And why not? The only connection we had with each other were, as it happened, our savior and our work. But at the time, I wasn't really all that certain about the savior part. So I took the safe route. She easily could have lied to me, telling me that she just needed time off. She had too many meetings to cover, and so on and so on. Instead, I learned that her roommate friendship was crumbling, marriage plans were faltering, and it seemed like something even darker was going on. Let's unpack this just a little bit. When I first moved in that year, back to the apartment that I'd stayed in the year before, we were meeting some of the other people, many of whom were new to the apartment complex, who were themselves just moving in for the first time. And among the people that I met that first day was Anne. Now, I thought Anne and Stuart were living together because it was they were together in what turned out to be his apartment. But as it turned out, he was in this apartment by himself, and it was, it was a nice two-bedroom place. He had plenty of room. And Anne lived, you know, the other side of campus. Anne was Spider's roommate. Of course, I didn't know that at the time. I wouldn't find that out until much later. Because even if Spider was saying something about something her roommate Anne said, or things that were going on between her and her neighbors, where Anne had a point of view, how was I supposed to know it was the same Anne? I had a sister named Anne. Anne's a pretty common name, right? The other thing that she mentioned was re- you know, regarding her, um, her marriage plans. She referred to this guy, and I'm quoting, he's my former fiancé, now boyfriend, soon-to-be friend. So this is a very dysfunctional, or broken, at least, relationship, going through a stage, a stage of progression that was undoing rather than doing, right? And she lived virtually next door to him. I know they were on the same floor. I don't know if they were the same, like, you know, one door down, but it felt that way. Later on, as this relationship developed into a pretty strong friendship, and I had the occasion to be over at her place or over at his place or her boyfriend's place, you got the, you got the feeling that these might as well have been adjoining rooms. Like an old-style hotel where you uh, have a door inside the hotel room that opens up to another door, and if both people in both those rooms open up their doors and they've turned essentially two different hotel rooms into one seamless suite of hotel rooms. It just felt that there was like a portal between the two of them because they exchanged that much. They were that um, fluid in their living space, but to have established that kind of a, of a treadway between the two places and now to be in the place where you're now not fiance anymore, barely boyfriend, soon to be friend and seemingly perhaps inevitably to be enemies if that if that doesn't happen in a very delicate way. So she was in a tough spot. The other thing was that she hadn't eaten. She hadn't eaten anything for days. I wasn't sure she wasn't trying to starve, and I couldn't be sure she wouldn't do something even more self-destructive than that. Now, perhaps I'm overreacting to things, perhaps I'm being overcautious, but it just felt that way. And I don't know whether that sense of things came from myself or came from a, a more spiritual place. Truthfully, I was shocked. Nothing in the employer-employee relationship prepared me for her openness, and I didn't have a plan. I'm the kind of guy who would probably have one, 
but I didn't have a plan. That night, I took a walk with the Lord, something that you might hear referred to from Christians from time to time as just a closer walk with thee. I went out on one of those walks. Alone, late at night, the campus was quiet. I just walked and listened. You know, a lot of people talk about unanswered prayers. God must answer the, can I have a pony prayer with a no, at least 90% of the time, because there are just too many little girls in the world and too few of them have a pony. But there is a prayer that I've found gets an answer, even a pretty direct answer, a much higher percentage of the time. And that night, walking through this empty campus, I prayed that prayer. Lord, what would you have me do? What would you have me do? Those may be the only words I spoke during the entire hour. This wasn't about, God, what's your plan for me? A me, me, me kind of an approach. But no, what would you have me do? What's your plan? And what am I supposed to do about it? I did get an answer. It came to me with what I can only call a strong sense of urgency. Act and act now. I needed to write Spider a letter. I needed to check with my fiance and see if she could give her a place to stay if needed. And I needed to watch for further warning signs to keep this conversation going. I didn't give Spider that letter. It went something like this, coming actually as a response to a very short note that she'd written to me, part of it business, but part of it, you know, sort of a change of pace that said really for the first time, a personal greeting, something as simple as hi. Spider, I wanted to thank you for the high at the conclusion of your note to me about the meeting Wednesday. The word said a lot. I have always believed that words do not have meaning, that they rarely communicate exactly what I'd want them to. This belief makes me feel even better about understanding all your two-letter word meant for me. Unfortunately, I've never been quite so good at putting my message into that one multi-purpose word, but I wanted to respond, so my response has many words. I was writing on the first journal entry yesterday night, and since then I've been thinking about what I could say in return that would truly be relevant. I decided to address a statement you made in the yearbook room Tuesday night when the editor thought I was talking to myself. You said something about not having any friends. Well, yesterday, a friend's brother, who was in a fraternity, said something about the members being friends of his if he joined, but not if he depledged. I questioned the meaning of the word friends. I've always thought that it was more eternal than circumstantial. People are not friends because of circumstance. Rather, friendship is made up of emotion, not common enemies or convenience. My friend was less concerned about his definition of friendship than with the emphasis on the number. More is not better. If he really had 70 true friends, he would be emotionally debilitated. After all, caring makes demands. With that in mind, I hope you know that you have friends who care. In fact, they don't just care. So I thought about how to best communicate that in a phrase. Here are some of the ideas I developed last night. Uh, Don't forget how important you are to people or you are special. Of course, the form could take varying numbers of emphases from the direct first example to the dangerously vague second example. The words themselves don't matter because the idea is already there. The phrase should really only call attention the evident I mean, all a person really remembers down the line is the feeling. An example. Once in high school, before I told anyone about the visions, I was at wit's end. I was so confused. I was standing by my locker, unsure that I'd even opened the right one. A very casual friend at the time, who is very dear to me now, grabbed me, asked me what was wrong, and when I said I didn't know, took me out to lunch at 3 p.m. when... She knew I wasn't hungry. I knew I wasn't hungry. She helped me put the pieces back together. I don't remember what Marcy said to me. I remember what she did. When we separated paths at graduation, I just cried. We both did. Instead of telling her that she saved my life or something and recounting a bad memory in the process, I used the L word. This word is the worst from a definition standpoint because it has no concrete meaning. Its meaning is completely subjective to the interpretation. We got lucky because she interpreted it just the way I meant it. The dictionary should have a different entry for that word as it applies to lovers, family, God, 
and friends, the nuances of meaning are significantly different. I remembered that story about Marcy because I decided I was going to leave a note in your box to let you know that you had one of those friends who truly cares. And I might want to use that L word again. I probably would use it more often in everyday speech if only people had respect for its power. Given the option, I'd rather you didn't feel sad. I favor a plan where both of us always feel at least as good as we did Tuesday in the yearbook room. One way to achieve that goal is to never forget the people who remember you. I always feel good when my mind drifts to thoughts about Marcy, or others, because it reminds me vividly that I am loved. Of course, my fiancé is a different reminder of that. It's a different situation altogether. Having used several words, here's the message. Spider, hi, don't forget that you are loved. Your friend Greg, and because I'm sure that she would agree with me, I had the letter co-signed by my fiancé. Of course, there's more to it than that. Maybe I was having it co-signed because I was afraid this was a letter that could be read in more than one way. Either way, I didn't give Spider that letter. You know, I could pull a jailhouse lawyer routine and split hairs like you wouldn't believe. I could tell God, you know, all you said was to write the letter. You didn't say anything about delivering it. The truth is, I was afraid to deliver it. My fiancé was fine with what I had prayerfully written. She would have used fewer words. But the letter wasn't particularly aggressive, and frankly, fewer words might have been more aggressive. I guess I feared that writing something like, stop telling yourself that no one cares because there are people who love you in ways that only God could possibly explain, well, it might be misinterpreted. Instead... I suggested that we double-date to a party. You know, there's this gap between God's wisdom and man's wisdom, and perhaps even a bigger gap to my wisdom. Spider went on a first date with one of our photographers. I'm just going to call him the photographer. We started the night at my place and uh, left his car at my apartment so I could drive. I wasn't planning to drink, but I looked like I was having a good time. And I, I don't, actually don't mind being the designated driver, so to speak, even though we didn't, didn't really use that phrase back then. What I had done was I had taken an almost completely empty, a literally running on fumes bottle of scotch or vodka or something, and filled it about a third or a half the way up with filtered water. Um, the water that wintertime uh, from the city didn't taste so good. So we had some bottled water, some, you know, some filtered water around to deal with the drinking side of things. I mean, it's okay to, um, to do the dishes or even really to wash your hair if you, if you got a good shampoo with water that smells like it's being treated. You know, the, it just isn't really good tasting. But you don't want to spend an entire party where you've committed to the idea of just drinking water and have that water be, well, you know, crap, right? So... Two things I had going for me. Once, by bringing it in with a bottle, it looked like I was carrying around a fifth or a liter. Yeah, no one messed with me. Anytime somebody offered me offered to make me a drink, I had one. Anytime anybody wanted anything else from me, um, I looked like I was all set. It looked like I was having a great time. And in fact, I was, even though I probably had less alcohol content in that very large bottle than you'd find the content of a squeeze of lime or a squeeze of lemon in a bottle of Perrier water. But the end of that is... When this party was over and we were driving home, my wife and I were the only sober people in the car, and I was by far the person with the most wits about me. Perhaps instinctively, the photographer had sensed Spider's vulnerability and her increasingly relaxed state of mind, if you know what I mean. With each passing minute, it became clear to me that he was very willing to take advantage of the situation. He had assumed her consent. I don't know any other way of putting it. Things had gone from bad to worse, and I couldn't help but sense that my partial obedience had raised the stakes in a dangerous direction. Worse, I felt totally helpless. If I'd put the letter in my glove compartment, I would have given it to her on the ride back to the apartment. In my cowardice, though, I'd left it at work, in my own mailbox, as if it was a letter to myself or something. I didn't even have the courage to properly not deliver it. I didn't even take the chance of leaving it in my drawer on my desk. Back at the apartment, I could have given up. I still didn't have a plan. 
but I decided to play some music and start some conversation and try to keep them as long as possible. I certainly considered the idea of having them stay the night. My fiance's apartment was in the same complex around the corner and up the stairs. The photographer had his own game plan though. He was intent that they were spending the night at his place. So I stalled. Along the way, the conversation turned to how everyone met. My wife and I had a story, of course, but the rest of us you know, really didn't. There was some talk about you know, not knowing that she was Anne's roommate or having, uh, going, both of us having gone on a ski trip and you know, some you know, sort of feeling or premonition about falling off a lift. There was talk, but you know, I'm sure my wife was bored to death with these two people she barely knew. I had no real history with either Spider or the photographer. Perhaps only a surreal history with Spider. I did share this with them, though. I told them that I didn't think we only got to know people through observation or rationalized interconnections. You know, a friend of a friend of mine. I shared that some people credit intuition with a sense that they should get to know someone. But just as often, I credited that sense to faith. I said something like, when you open yourself up to love someone in the way that God does, there's a great deal you learn about that person before you even meet. It may seem like a little, but it's enough to make a connection, a subtle connection. Spider got a look on her face that I will never forget. And she said, you don't know how much I wish I was someone you loved like that. I don't think I've ever heard words so convicting coming from the mouth of someone who wasn't trying to point out my shortcomings. She shared this with the photographer draped all over her and uh, my fiance sitting on the next couch. So clearly I was a fool to assume she wouldn't understand agape. Worse, if Jesus was asking me to share, then I clearly had failed him. Worst of all, that failure might be leading within hours to a date rape or some other unpleasant circumstance for someone who was already on the ledge, so to speak. If I hadn't seen it before, it now became clear. Jesus wanted me to befriend this person. Befriend in a way that we don't even understand the definition most of the time. I had written the letter, but she hadn't read it. We were fully prepared to give Spider an out, another place to spend the night away from her roommate and her ex-boyfriend who lived nearby, away from the photographer. Spider didn't know any of that. I was so shocked by what she shared with us that I could only mumble something about her not having any idea. Now think about that. That's the way the conversation went. You don't know how much I wish I was someone you loved like that. You don't have any idea. <laughs> well, I... I didn't have a chance to try to communicate better because I was praying. At the time, I didn't realize what a blessing it was. But this prayer, unlike most of the other prayers I've ever uttered in my lifetime, turned into conversation. I may have been speaking my parts aloud for all to hear, for all I know, because I was desperate for answers. I was feeling a frightening sense of empathy. What if the worst happens? Who could she turn to that night? Or the next morning, her roommate, her ex-fiance. At 1.37 a.m. on February 7th, 25 years ago, I heard an answer. Let me say this again. I heard an answer. I didn't just get one. It is far better to say something that should not be said than not to say something that should be said. Okay, I replied, I, I get it. It's hard enough to say I'm sorry when you've done something wrong, but it's almost impossible to apologize for not acting when you know you must, for failing to act when you know that you should have. What would you have me do? That again. Yes. What would you have me do? You should have given her the letter. At this point, I'm looking around to see if anyone else is hearing this. I really needed a second opinion, and I wasn't getting one. I guess my speechless response had something to do with wondering if the tone wasn't one of accusation. In the New Testament, both Paul and Peter warned about the voice of the accuser being Satan. The answer was loving, though. It's not like you don't know what you wrote, so you can write it again. All you need is an opportunity. 
Just then, the photographer got up to use the bathroom, which he announced to us as if he might take a while. Spider started talking with my wife about something, probably about how weird it is for somebody on a first date to get up, use the restroom, and announce to everybody in the room, including the person he's dating, that he's going to be in there a while. What I did, though, was grab pen and paper, lean over the kitchen counter, and wrote that letter again. Shorter this time, way more to the point. And in it, I included telephone numbers for both apartments. Before I gave Spider the letter, I sat on the floor between the two couches. Wife at my right, Spider at my left. I intended to warn her that the photographer thought she was a sure thing that night. But what I spoke was pure gibberish. One look at my wife confirmed that I wasn't speaking English or any other known language. When people have asked me, when friends who go to more charismatic churches than I do, ask me if I've ever spoken in tongues before, I give them a very weird answer. Maybe. How can you not be sure about that answer, right? Well, the one thing I am certain of is that I have never spoken in tongues in a church during a worship experience. But you know what? This situation came awfully close. Because the Bible tells us that speaking in tongues, from a scriptural perspective, is a word of prophecy that has an interpretation where the answer is meaningfully relevant. Speaking in tongues is not some parlor game. If it's real, somebody has something to say that's important. Somebody else in the room is capable of interpreting it, and that interpretation changes the course of action or provides some sort of revelation. It's meaningful. Well, Spider understood perfectly what I mumbled. She says, sex? <laughs> not tonight and not with him. I didn't use the word sex at all. But it gave her the warning she needed to start sending dramatically different signals. So, at that point, I gave her the letter and insisted that she call one of us the next day and uh, sooner if necessary. It made all the difference in the world. Before long, the photographer started picking up Spider's new demeanor. He changed his game plan, and he ended up helping her navigate through some of her crumbling social situations. He wasn't a bad guy. He was just a guy. Well, he didn't get what he expected by going out with us that night, but it all worked out. You know what? I didn't get what I expected either. Out of desperation, I shared a very little bit about my relationship with Jesus. No one would confuse that conversation with witnessing, but the Lord made it work. All week long, heading up to the party that Friday night that ended early in the morning hours Saturday morning, I'd been making jokes in the newsroom and classes in my apartment that God was going to send me a vision. Saturday, probably in the early morning, he was going to give me the answer to the thing that had been bothering me for months about why I had that overwhelming feeling moving into school that year that I was on the verge of something triumphant, that something was going to happen that was going to confirm or change the direction of my life, that I was going to get an answer to questions about life and about love that I had been seeking, if only subconsciously, for years, going all the way back to my senior year in high school, when I couldn't explain for the life of me why I cared about somebody that I barely knew before the overwhelming feelings of concern hit me. Well, they hit me again here in this particular exchange somewhere between dreams and, you know, senses of foreboding Thanksgiving weekend, all the way to the very end of January when I'm sitting in the yearbook room with somebody telling me that she's, she understands, she gets it. She thinks the person in that dream might be her. That if I think she's the spider, she thinks she's the spider too. So what do I have here, right? Well, I've got a dream that I had in January. After I found out that this particular woman had fallen off the ski lift, when I was the one thinking during that ski trip that I took that winter that I was going to somehow have a catastrophic ski lift accident. And in the midst of all that, I had this dream that a year later, my wife and I were married at that time. And we were in our bedroom in some, you know, far off city. We'd graduated. We'd moved on. And she went into the bedroom, cracked open the bedroom window, and a spider crawled in through the window. It looked like the kind of very poisonous, very deadly brown recluse spiders, although it probably wasn't because in the dream it was much bigger. 
Uh, it was probably one of the wolf spiders where nowhere near as poisonous, but it makes up for it with a lot of attitude. I made a mention in the dream to my wife that, that she shouldn't have opened the window. This is a very dangerous thing that that spider looks like it has a fiddle on its back to which my wife described a deadpan voice looked more like a cello to me. So it turns out that, Oh, and then I, so I, I take a shot at the spider, try to knock it off the wall, try to kill it. And when the spider came off the wall, it was a woman, not an arachnid holding a arm as if I had maybe dislocated a, sh- a shoulder or something by throwing a shoe at her. And, um, I didn't know when I had the dream who this person was. It was one of those dreamlike composite figures where it was probably lots of people all rolled up into one. But here I am, you know, a few days later, sitting in the newspaper offices, having this person tell me, yeah, I, I, think, I'm, I think I'm that spider. Well, that connected in very weird and direct ways to all of these high school stories, to that sense again that I'm not calling the shots here. There is something going on that is either spiritual or part of my collective unconscious, and I'm not 100% sure what I should do about it. Well, what I did about it was journal. And there'd been times in my life when I'd journaled before, and most of those previous occasions, I had a feeling I was trying to to get at. I had a sense of confusion I was trying to overcome. I had something that I was trying to study, for want of a better word. And this was no different, although in this case, it was perhaps more powerful than any of those others, maybe more powerful than all those other short-term journals combined. The name of this journal, as I worked out some of the things that were happening that particular spring, was Different Drummer. And it has everything to do with why I call the segment in this show, where I give you know, proper recognition to people who've made a game-changing influence in my life, the Different Drummer. Michael Franks is a jazz singer who, in my mind, is delightfully beyond classification. Uh, You might find his music, uh, his contribution to music in world music, in jazz, in pop. He appears in lots of places. But generally speaking, if you think of the sort of 1980s, 90s, smooth jazz, wave jazz type of music, he is a vocalist within that genre. When I first heard him, the first comparison that I thought was perhaps Al Jarreau. I had uh, Al Jarreau, uh, a live album from Al Jarreau, made in the 70s, pretty early on in my music listening experience. Uh, the kind of thing where if, you, if it's a dollar and you're at a used record store, you just pick it up and give it a try. And a dollar for a two-record set, all the better. So that was kind of the connection that I made to him musically. But I actually had heard Michael Franks before I realized that I had, if that makes sense. I'd heard him not knowing who he was. Because... Somewhere in the late 1970s, when I was, you know, a, a kid, too, too young even to drive, I remember responding to uh, an offer inside a record that I'd bought, probably a Black Sabbath album. I'm not sure about exactly which one, but in it, it had what the uh, Warner Brothers company referred to as Lost Leader albums. You sent them a couple of dollars to cover postage and handling, and they would send you a free, a free record, uh, or that covers the cost of the record. Two record sets usually... And I have, you know, probably a dozen of these. I still have them, as a matter of fact, downstairs in my music collection, because I really, really liked them. They had um, two records set with a big fold-out, lots of information about every song and every artist, because essentially the albums existed to promote artists on the Warner Electron Atlantic family of record labels. And so you'd have some songs on there that actually had been hits as a way of enticing people to pick up the album, but the real intent was to get you to hear for the first time bands that you otherwise might not hear. A guy like Michael Franks works on um, a lot of radio stations. Uh, You could see him being played on jazz stations, on NPR stations, but also on pop stations and top 40 stations. But unfortunately, being that kind of a chameleon often works against you, and maybe because you fit into multiple classifications, you're not going to get played on the radio. That the moment where someone decides that you could be this or that might make the programming director decide that you're neither or you're the other one and not what I play. So the first song I ever heard from him was Popsicle Toes from his Art of Tea album. But I heard it not on that record. I heard it instead on a Lost Leader album that was put out by Warner Brothers. Uh, I'm not sure whether it was the People's Choice or uh, which one it was. But since I bought a handful or more than a handful at once, 
it took me a while to work my way through it. It took me even longer to connect the songs I liked with who the artists were and what the albums were. I could try to make a case for Michael Franks as a different drummer because of kind of what a chameleon he is, simultaneously recording in a very consistent style, and yet being the same and different from a lot of other things that were out there. I could mention him because he writes his own songs and his own lyrics, and has written songs that have been recorded by a wide variety of other people in that same sort of pop jazz, light jazz genre. But that's not why I'm mentioning him as a different drummer. And it's not why I'm mentioning him on this particular episode as a different drummer. I'm mentioning him because when I talk about trying to keep a party going, after the party, we leave. We go as a group back to my apartment. And I realize that it's really important that nobody go home yet. At first, because I was concerned that the other driver was drunk. Secondly, because I was concerned that the man in that particular relationship might be planning to do something incredibly inappropriate and illegal, and I wanted to protect him from the consequences of his completely misunderstanding the signal she was sending, and her, of course, from being, you know, put in a sexually compromising situation. So we're listening to music. Michael Franks is the music that we were listening to. Skin Dive, in particular, was the album that we played, and we also played the music of the Yellow Jackets. Now, ironically, it was a couple of years later that the uh, Michael Franks would collaborate with Yellow Jackets on one of their live albums, but that wasn't hard to imagine it happening. When I saw that it occurred on Yellow Jackets Live, it didn't strike me as, uh, as odd. It struck me a little bit odd that the song that they do together is called The Dream, but it didn't strike me as odd that they would get together and collaborate because they have a lot of musical ideas in common, right? So for Michael Franks, what we were listening to was the album Skin Dive. Actually, if it had been the album, it would have been the middle of side two. But the CD Skin Dive and the, the song that really clicked at that moment in that conversation and has maintained a special part in my music history ever since was a song called Now I Know Why They Call It Falling. There's something about music functioning as the soundtrack of our lives that I really believe in. In fact, I kind of, I rue the day, as the saying goes, that one day some incredibly crappy song that I otherwise hate will be playing during a critical moment in my life. At my wedding, I had a lot of say and tried to put a lot of controls around the music that was played at the reception for that very reason. Perhaps the most important day of my life at that point in my life, I didn't want the music to be something that I, that I would never want to hear again. Um, it's, it becomes ingrained as the soundtrack of that situation. And the soundtrack of this moment, uh, when I was realizing I was going to have to get an answer that I didn't have, and I prayed and I got an answer to prayer like I've never gotten before, was Michael Franks. And that's, frankly, enough reason to make him a different drummer. He's become a starring musician in the soundtrack of my life. There was another song that we were hearing a lot of that Spider actually has to be played more than once from Yellow Jackets, from their album Shades. Again, what would have been the end of side one if it had been an LP, but it was in fact a CD. And a song called Revelation, one of the few, if not maybe the only vocal song on that CD, CD that from a singles perspective, if you can refer to jazz singles, single probably would have been, and you know that, the first track, or one of the other songs later on that had been used in a, in a movie. But the lyrics to Revelation were, it's very religious, a very reflective religious song with a female gospel singer with a booming voice. She sang... I can remember the time that I was in church all day, and I wonder what my friends used to think, used to think about me. I can remember the time when Sunday school seemed like it lasted so very long, but if I knew what I know now, I would have stayed all day. You know, I can remember the first time I heard the song thinking, those are really weird lyrics. You know, and it's kind of weird lyrics for a college-age audience, right? It was strange that Spider liked it so much. It didn't click with me. But guess what? On Revelation Weekend, that song also became a key track in the soundtrack of my life. I want to conclude this inappropriate conversation by speaking really directly to my Christian friends. Before I do, if there's any one thing remaining to be said to others who hear this, it would be that conversation that I mentioned at the very beginning of the show. You don't forget what is said to you when you get this kind of answer to prayer. Do I have any doubt that if somebody had a vision, whether it's a burning bush, 
whether it's a valley of dry bones coming together and creating life, whether it's a chariot of fire carrying a prophet up into the skies, whatever it is, when you have one of these moments, I have no doubt in my mind, you remember where you were when it happened, you remember what time it was when it happened, and you remember what was said. It's far better to say something that should not be said than not to say something that should be said. And really, in some ways, that's got a lot to do with what inappropriate conversations is all about. But to my Christian friends, I just want to remind remind you of what Spider said to me. You don't know how much I wish I was someone you loved like that. Someone in your life is struggling to find the words to say that very thing to you. It's true for each one of us. They may not be as articulate as Spider. They may not express it in a positive way, like, I want you involved. They may express it in a negative way by saying, leave me alone, I want nothing to do with you. But the way they live their lives are screaming those words. Our relationship with Jesus is ultimately private. That is piety. But it is not exclusive. If we truly love him, then his friends are our friends. If and when he introduces us. They don't have to be friends who've converted to Christianity. They don't have to be friends who have joined your church. They don't have to be friends who speak your language or live their life according to your own personal moral code. It's enough that they're his friends, even if they have no idea who he is. So what will you do when God tells you that he wants you to get to know someone? Thanks for listening.